The sermon text for this evening is Nahum chapter 3, but beforehand we are going to just briefly read a passage from Revelation 18, chapter 18, which is from verse 21 into chapter 19, verse 2. So Revelation 18, uh, 21 to 19, 2. Revelation 19, 18, the word of the Lord. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon the great city be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all the nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on earth. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And now please turn with me in your Bibles to Nahum chapter 3. Nahum chapter 3. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder. No end to the prey, the crack of the whip, the rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. And for all the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and will lift up your skirts over your face, and I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. And all who look at you will shrink from you and say, Wasted is Nineveh. Nineveh. Who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? Are you better than Thebes that sat by the Nile with water around her, her rampart a sea and water her wall? Cush was her strength, Egypt too, and that without limit. Put and Libyans were her helpers. Yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Her infants were dashed in pieces at the head of every street. For her honored men, lots were cast, and all her great men were bound in chains. You also will be drunken, and you will go into hiding. You will seek a refuge from the enemy. All your fortresses are like fig trees with first ripe figs. If shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. Behold, your troops are women in your midst. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire has devoured your bars. Draw water for the siege, strengthen your forts. Go into the clay, tread the mortar, take hold of the brick mold. 
There will the fire devour you, the sword will cut you off. It will devour you like the locust. Multiply yourselves like the locust. Multiply like the grasshopper. You increased your merchants more than the stars of the heavens. The locust spreads its wings and flies away. Your princes are like grasshoppers, your scribes like clouds of locusts, settling on the fences in a day of cold. When the sun rises, they fly away. No one knows where they are. Your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria. Your nobles slumber. Your people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? Well, the largest city in South Africa is officially named Johannesburg, but it has an unofficial Zulu name, Ikoli, which means the city of gold. Now, of course, this city is not built literally of gold, but it was built off the wealth from the gold rush. Like any other city, it's built of concrete and steel. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with the city becoming large or wealthy or powerful. But when does a city become more than just a city? Well, that is a question uh, that is answered in Nahum's third poem. The problem is when a state or a nation or a city begins to think it is all-powerful. As we look at history, we can see that any nation has the possibility of turning bestial. And when it does that, it assumes ultimate power. It makes godlike claims and it acts with savage terror and violence. Yet, ultimately, its claims prove false, and those nations do not last forever. For example, Babylon was raised up to judge Assyria, Persia to judge uh, Babylon, uh, Macedonia to judge Persia, uh, Rome to uh, uh, judge Macedonia, and so on. So what we see then in Nahum's third poem is one incident of a recurring historical pattern. So Yahweh's message to Judah in Nahum is that although nations may appear mighty, they may appear godlike, through God's judgment, he will show through the facade of earthly power and he will reveal his true saving and delivering power. Yet Judah may have wondered, will this cycle of violence ever end? And the answer to that question is, yes, it will, in the day of the Lord. As we read in John's vision in Revelation 18, the harlot is thrown into the sea, and Jesus avenges the blood of his saints. So for us, we can take comfort in Nahum's message too. But ours is a greater comfort, a comfort that's fully informed by the fact of Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection as well as knowledge of the future final judgment. Well, Nahum's third poem is composed of two parts. In the first seven verses, we have a woe against Nineveh, and the remaining 12 verses are the series of taunts that end in a a dirge against the Assyrian king, who is uh, announced to die shortly thereafter. In Nahum's first two poems, we saw the terrible nature of the violence of Assyria, It was built on the blood of the innocent. 
And so it's certainly fitting that its capital city, Nineveh, is called the city of bloodshed. And so in verse 1, we have a woe, which is a threat of destruction. And this is pronounced against Nineveh, the scarlet city. Assyrian lions have brought in endless amounts of prey. And using their deception and violence, Nineveh has a belly that is full of plunder. So the woe comes for three crimes. First, the murder of the innocent, the lies of Assyria's diplomats and propagandists, and the extortion and theft of resources. And what follows then in verses 2 to 3 is a dizzying scene. If, if you can think of how a, a movie portrays a child lost in a crowd, the camera angle is low, the scene is out of focus. There are flashes of light, loud sounds, and the child gets knocked to and fro. Well, here the noises are of the whips, the glinting of the swords. This is the sight and sound of violent bloodshed. It's a visual and audio uh, depiction of the Assyrian death machine. See, Assyrians didn't just kill the innocent. They liked doing so. And they did so in terrifying ways. We're described here that they slaughtered so many, it was like heaps of corpses, so many bodies that the soldiers would stumble over them. This is a shocking and dehumanizing image. Their infliction of death was arbitrary, it was chaotic, and it was animalistic. As the king of Assyria at the time recorded in one of his battle records, the wheels of my war chariot, which bring low the wicked and evil, were bespattered with blood and filth. With the bodies of their warriors, I filled the plain like brass. So that's the Assyrian death machine. Well, as a result, the, uh, p- the personification here of Assyrian Nineveh is likened to a prostitute. And this is similar to John's imagery in Revelation 17 to 18. John describes Babylon as this seductive prostitute, as a crafty witch who lures the nations into her abominations. And here Nahum describes Nineveh in much the same way. Nineveh is a mistress of sorceries. And she persuaded these lesser states to come under her control, to join in her snowballing of glory and power. And this was her propaganda, the promise of wealth, of strength, of safety, and of glory. Yet her promises all failed. They were pufferies. Her many clients, these many nations, were swindled. Though she is not just some victim in a back alley, the bottom rung of society, Nineveh was the perpetrator. See, Assyria was a world power. They were a master manipulator, drunk with the cruel pleasure of trapping and betraying nations. Her betrayal here is not infidelity, but gross misrepresentation. What we have here is mass political catfishing. And this is meant to conjure up for us disgust in our eyes. Nineveh is not just a city. Nineveh represents the worst of the city of man, the worst of the city of sinners who is raised up against the city of God. And as previously announced in the second poem, this kind of rebellion and wickedness attracts the opposition of the Lord. 
Do you remember the second poem ended with the Lord announcing, behold or see, I am against you. And we have a repeat of this warning here in verse 5. Uh, I am against you. The mistress of sorceries is about to meet the master of wrath. But the Lord's judgment here depicted contains a message for Judah. He gives them an image, and this image is meant to help allay their fears. If you've watched the Harry Potter movies, you may recall this creature called a bogart. This is a shapeshifter that takes the, the form of whatever scares the person in front of it the most. It has a lot of power to, to bring fear and terror, but its power can be taken away with a simple spell. With the whip of a wand and, the, and, and saying ridiculous, the creature is, conf- is transformed into the funniest possible version of itself. So, for example, a giant spider would suddenly find itself with roller skates on its feet and be unable to stand. The creature that was previously terrifying is suddenly ridiculous. Everybody laughs at it, and the fear is dissipated. The bogart loses its power to terrify. Well, the Lord has never been afraid of anyone. In fact, as we learn in Psalm 2, when nations rebel, he looks at them with contempt. He holds them in derision, and the fear that other people would have experienced, he turns downwards and he terrifies the nations with his own fury. Their power is nothing to the Lord, so what does he do? He sits in heaven and laughs. How ridiculous is this? So in this poem, Nineveh is a raging nation, a bogart, terrifying God's people. So what does the Lord do? He invites Judah to participate in comedy hour. In order to allay their anxiety, he invites them to join in his kingly laughter, to make a spectacle of this city, Nineveh. She will get her just desserts, and the Judeans get to laugh at this ridiculous image. Well, Yahweh announces his humiliation in two categories. The first way that he's going to humiliate Nineveh is uh, concerning nakedness. It says that the Lord will lift up her skirts over her face. Uh, in a culture where saving face and preserving honor is really important, this is a real, this idea of public exposure, it brings great shame and humiliation. She experiences almost like an uncreation event where her fangs, her hidden fangs of attraction are snapped off. By the shame. And the second category of humiliation is that the Lord will throw filth at her. Now, this is a metaphor that does two things. In the first, it connects Nineveh with the idea that she was previously pure and fragrant and attractive in people's eyes, but now she is shown to be dirty and disgusting. And secondly, there's a connection in this word of filth to images and the idols of pagan deities. So Nineveh's idolatry is coming back to bite her. And just as the Lord looks at arrogant nations with derisions, here the Lord will declare Nineveh as contemptible or worthless. He will declare her so because this is a promise that he made first to the king in the first poem. When he said, you are vile. And finally, the Lord will make a spectacle of her. 
Well, the idea of a spectacle is to demonstrate something publicly that was previously private. And in the case of Assyria, its deceit and manipulation were hidden beneath this veneer of uh, attractive veneer of diplomatic rhetoric and smoothness. This harlot had weaponized seduction as a lure unto death. But now her perfume will be neutralized. Her fine linen skirt will be thrown over her head and she will be soiled with the very filth that she had perpetuated among the nations. Where she once attracted, she will now repel. Where she was once an object of lust, she becomes an object of disgust. In other words, the empire has no clothes. Or in her wasted state, the nations will not mourn and no one will come to comfort her. So in these first seven verses, what we see is the result of God's judgment. It ends in isolation. There will be no one to grieve for Nineveh. And this is what sin deserves. Judgment, isolation, shame, scorn, repulsion. Nineveh has won for herself a taste of hell. And this is true, too, in the day of the Lord, as we saw in Revelation chapter 18. As the last judgment uh, occurs, God's enemies will have their secret deeds uncovered, exposed, and they will be shamed for their sins. But what we don't see in Nahum is that God will bear the shame of his elect upon himself in Christ. Nineveh got a taste of hell for their sins. But Christ had to suffer the full measure of hell for our sins. And so his nakedness and shame are an exposition for us in blood. An exposition in blood of what sin deserves. What our sins deserved. Well, having completed this woe in the first seven verses, Nahum now comes to recount a series of three taunts from the Lord. What are the purpose of taunts? Well, taunts are meant to put fear in enemies. But as we know, this is a, this is a, these series of poems are actually addressed rhetorically to Nineveh, but it's, it's Judah who is the actual audience who will be hearing this. So rather than to make Nineveh fear, this is meant to comfort the Judeans by showing the deconstruction of Assyria's power. Each element that Assyria boasted about, the Lord is now going to undo one by one. Historically, militarily, and economically. So the first taunt is a historical taunt. And it's a, a question of Nineveh's power which compares it to Thebes, right? Also a rhetorical question. So this question in verse 8 means, when your time comes, do you think you will be better off than Thebes? See, Thebes in Egypt appeared unassailable. It had great military power. It had powerful allies. It was surrounded by geographical features that was likely to make it uh, uh, less likely to be invaded. And so it, it appeared the most powerful city. There was no way it could fall. And yet it did fall, ironically, to Assyria. It went into exile, and it became a victim of Assyria's gross violence. See the infanticide that's mentioned there, the cruel treatment of its elders. They were playing rock, paper, scissors over the nobles and elders of the city. So this city that appeared so unassailable 
was easily assailed by Assyria. So in verse 11, the rhetorical question is answered. No, no, you won't do better than Thebes when your time comes. Nineveh, you will have a similar fate, a similar end to Thebes. You end up stumbling in drunkenness. So drunkenness here is is picking up on an uh, uh, Old Testament image of drinking the cup of God's wrath, a cup which all nations who rebel against the lordship of, of God must drink. And so Nineveh will drink this cup, and in fear they will run and try to hide and escape from their enemy that's coming in judgment. The second taunt is a military taunt, which is composed of uh, four parts. The first talks about uh, Nineveh's fortresses. So these are like fortified cities out across the empire, uh, inside which military stores occur, both weapons and personnel and things, and are used to expand the empire. But these are going to become like trees with ripe, juicy figs, that when you shake them, they fall into the mouth of the enemy. Nineveh's fortresses are ripe for the picking. Now, this is a powerful image of judgment, also used in Revelation chapter 6. In the last judgment, the stars will fall from heaven like figs falling off a shaken tree. Now, the second image of this military taunt, have a look at verse 13, is an unexpected result that the soldiers will be as women. They'll become like women. Now, this is not misogynistic. It's rather to to reflect the effects of fear and terror. Size and strength are crucial in battle, especially without the weapons that we have today. The irony here, though, is that this was a common Assyrian battle description of the fear of their enemies. They would say, our enemies became like women. And now this is being turned back on them. Thirdly, there will be widespread failure of their protective gates. The bars that shut and lock the gates are burned, and enemies now have open access to the cities. So together, these three images point to the certainty of Nineveh's defeat. And that's what makes the fourth part of this image, the fourth image, so harsh. They're told to draw water for a siege that they're definitely going to lose. And then they're told to fortify the cities by making mud bricks. But they're only given half the instructions. See, while they're in the middle of their preparations, suddenly destruction will come so swiftly that they won't even have time to bake and install the bricks. All they will do is gather the the clay and the molds but they won't get all the way through. While they're in the middle of preparing, fire and sword will fall upon them like locusts devouring a crop. As Nahum had indicated in his previous poem, the second poem, the lion imagery is recalled here. The predator has become helpless prey, as helpless as grain to a swarm of locusts. Well, that's the historic and the military taunts, and then we have the third and final taunt, the economic taunt. Have a look at the end of verse 15. So the image here is about various types of of grasshoppers and locusts. So we just had locusts before where the image was about consuming. But now the image is, is not about consuming, it's rather a play on the numbers and for how short a duration 
they are where they are seen. They're great in numbers and they, and they vanish quickly. So Assyria is taunted to multiply. And this is really ironic because, again, in their self-description of their battles, they, they, they recorded themselves as descending on their enemies like swarms of countless locusts. But the locusts are coming home to roost. See, at the heart of this taunt is a, the underlying system of Assyria's economy. Uh, as Nahum admits, Assyria has a massive economy. It is a great economic power. But as Peter Parker's grandfather might say, with great power comes great administration. Uh, in order to get this vast system to work, it needed countless merchants and traders. They had to trade with foreign powers. They had to regulate the payments coming in from all their vessel, vessel states and so on. So it also needed royal courtiers there and some type of scribes here, which are Assyrian diplomats that regulate economic affairs. Their overall number is so great that they're like a global plague of locusts and grasshoppers spread throughout the world. In the cold day of power, they are countless. But in the hot sun of judgment, they fly away. Here today, gone tomorrow. Like the sudden departure of locust swarms, they would just vanish. The bankers would disappear. Wall Street would become a ghost town. Well, this is a massive reversal because what seemed like a superpower turned out just to be a collection of insects. And therefore, we can see that the strongest and richest nation is just an ant that is easily crushed by the boot of God's wrath. And therefore, Judah does not need to be afraid, do they? If this is the power of their God, who can crush their enemy like a pest, then why should they fear? See, militarily, Judah's small, limited power is not actually relevant because the one who will fight for them is the divine warrior, Yahweh. He can defeat the most seemingly powerful nation easily. So the message is, don't worry, Judah. Divine pest control is on the way. Well, following these three powerful taunts, Nahum concludes with a dirge for the Assyrian king. So imagine with me for a moment you open the newspaper to discover an obituary has been written for you while you are still alive. Well, that your future death has been broadcast to the public. And that's the kind of feature that's being captured here for, his, his, for the Lord's audience, Judah. The king of Assyria is as good as dead in the Lord's eyes. In the first poem, it ended with the, with the Lord promising to make the king's grave. And now the time of his grave has come. The king and his empire will expire. And that's laid out in three parts. So have a look at verse 18. The first thing that will happen is that the Assyrian Empire will collapse. The shepherd king's nobles, which are spoken of as a kind of under-shepherd by Nahum, will have abandoned their posts or died. While they're supposed to be ruling and caring for the people, they will have disappeared, and the people are left with no one to gather them. And this is the irony, because Nineveh were these Oh, Assyria with these great scatterers, but the scatterers are now to be scattered. Judah's own shepherd king 
has arrived and has and has dispatched with Assyria's self-glorifying elite lions. Second, the king has a wound. This is a wound from which he will not recover. It is a terminal fracture from which there is no pain relief. See, when you're smashed by the hand of God's judgment, there is no recovery. And this is an intrusion for us of the day of the Lord. You see, as we read in Revelation 18, God will judge the harlot and cast her to her death at the bottom of the sea, right? So here we see in Nahum a shadow of what will occur on the last day. The Lord will inflict a fatal blow. There, God will bring a final end to the cycle of violence. Thirdly, we're shown the response of the nations to the demise of the Assyrian king and his empire. Look at the end of verse 19. See, when a king dies, we might expect that his allies would mourn, right? That they would grieve, but instead the nations clap their hands. Now, this can be understood as a gesture of of joy, but it's better to understand it as a gesture of derision and scorn, as it appears in other places in the Old Testament, like Lamentations 2 and so on. The reason that it is is given this way is in the form of a rhetorical question. You see, Assyria had unceasingly been coming against nations with, with its tremendous evil. It had so many victims that everyone who hears of Nineveh's demise gloats in derision. What was the once charming uh, harlot in disguise is now naked and humiliated, and the people gloat with derision. Upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? Is a rhetorical question. Now, only one other book in the Bible ends with a question, and that is the book of Jonah. Now, as we know, Jonah recounts Nineveh heeding the call to repentance in light of God's impending judgment. But in, in Nahum, a little over a century later, we see the devastating consequences of a city that has returned to its wicked ways. Its fate is now sealed. And Nineveh will vanish from history through the Lord's frightful judgment. Now, not many poets would think to end their poem on such a note. But Nahum is more than just a poet. Nahum is a prophet. Through the Lord, the Lord has comforted, through the, through Nahum, the Lord has comforted Judah with the message about the, uh, about the future. The enemy that's ruled over them for so long and so cruelly is about to disappear. That's true, they've been comforted. But at the same time, Nahum is prophesying concerning more than just one event. He did not necessarily know it at the time, but he was speaking of a greater deliverance that was to come. One that would bring an end to the catastrophic cycles of violence and pride in the world that we've seen throughout history. And in this deliverance, the Lord would also right all wrongs, and he would avenge all the sufferings of God's people. 
recounted in Revelation 18 to 19, as we read earlier, this deliverance is the day of the Lord. And in that day, we celebrate and praise the Lord because he avenges the blood of his saints. We will also glory and, and share in the victory of Christ. And we will rejoice in the consummation of redemption. See, even though empires rise and then fall and geopolitical powers wax and wane, even though the city of man is here today and gone tomorrow, the kingdom of our God and his Christ will stand forever. And this is the reality that is certified to us by Christ's shed blood. You see, when Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath for the elect and staggered unto death, it was through the cross that he conquered sin and death. And he vanquished Satan's accusing power against us. Through suffering the scorn and shame that our sin deserved, he made a public spectacle of the spiritual rulers and authorities. Despite having done no violence, as Isaiah 53 says, and there being no deceit in his mouth, Jesus faced what we all deserved. And it was actually in facing this shame that Christ was God's means of shaming and defeating our enemies, that we may share in his own victory. And in that one act also provides for us redemption because he was raised for our justification. This is a a covering act of clothing us in our nakedness with his own righteousness. And this outfit guarantees for us that we will share in his victory at the end of the age, that we will inherit the new heavens and the new earth with him. A new creation which is free from enemies, free from taunts, free from sufferings, free from persecution, and free from death. Christ's drinking of that cup of wrath means that we can now drink the cup of blessing. Yet, Revelation 5 to 6 says that between these two events, Christ's death and resurrection, and the last judgment, the last day, that there is an age between it where Satan and his demons militate against God's children and seeks to devour them. And so the reality of suffering in our lives until that day is portrayed. See, the, the church will face persecution and suffering until Christ's return. The victory procession of Christ's people after Christ's resurrection does not appear triumphant in this age. If anything, it appears more a march of death than a march of victory. And until the day of the judgment, the powerful rhetoric of the world, with its evil taunts, can make the church and the saints feel so small. Whether through intimidation, shame, violence, persecutions, or whatever else it may be, we may feel terrified, horrified, fearful, and abandoned. But the Lord has a message for his church, just as he had for Judah. Yes, your sufferings are real, and yes, you feel so small. But remember who is on your team. The lion of the tribe of Judah and the lamb who was slain, the mighty conquering king, is against your enemies because he is for you. Your enemies are mere insects 
who will be unmasked for what they are and cast into the fire. And you will be with the Lord forever. So his message is, do not worry. Do not be afraid. I am with you. And what a great comfort that is. What a great savior. Therefore, dear saints, praise the lion and the lamb. Our stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows you because you take refuge in him. And he will preserve you until the end. Amen. Let's pray.